Hey, Catherine, good to see you once again. Yeah. <laughs> How are things in Wyoming? Uh, cold, uh, too cold. Really? Yeah, yeah, it oh. just doesn't stop over okay. here. Okay, well. We do what we can. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, once again, I'm really excited to get to chat with you. It's such a pleasure to get to uh, learn a little bit more about you and your work and where you where you come from. But before we get to talking about uh, your latest project, uh, which is where elephants weep, I'd like to ask you a few questions about where you began as a human being and as an artist, if that's okay. I would love that. And I love the preface where I began as a human being. Because <laughs> in the end, that's, that is, in fact, something that we all humans share, is that it, given all the different possibilities, we are, all of us humans, or not the animals, but the, the humans are humans. <laughs> that's right. That's Thank right. You. And listening to some of your conversations that you've had on some podcasts before as well, I got a clear sense of almost a mission statement happening very, very early in life for you, especially given where you grew up. Can you tell me about your parents in particular and and the California that you grew up in? Because it feels like that sort of influenced your origins quite a bit. Yes, thank you. So my father sailed a catamaran across the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, that was the first uh, time that that had happened. And uh, he was from the very center of France. So in, in what they call the sort of backwater uh, part of France, you know, not a great reputation. People thought of those people as sort of hicks. Mm. And uh, why he had the desire to to go and sail is just uh, part of the mystery <laughs> <laughs> and so then when he when he arrived he then embarked on uh, building one of the first laminated fiberglass sailboats and uh, unfortunately had a somewhat of a tragedy occur with that boat mm. and that brought him to uh, San Diego California where he became an oceanographer so then my mother's side of the family was from Algeria, and uh, they were what is called Pinois. And uh, she then came um, to the United States with him. And in a, in a thing that's a bit hard to understand, she didn't really know the country of France as her own country. Algeria mm. was her country. And as you may know, uh, in 1962, it got its independence and she never uh, returned to her homeland. Mm. So then four of us, uh, we were four siblings, grew up in that uh, strange environment in which we had <laughs> parents who were constantly trying to understand and we were in the front lines of explaining for example, why people ate peanut butter, that seemed, <laughs> <laughs> that seemed very strange to them. And my older brother was front and center in command of explanations. And if, <laughs> if he couldn't explain it, I was next. And so it was really kind of a free-for-all from the beginning in terms of what we were all uh, learning and understanding. And then, so French was my first language. However, early on, uh, we, my father and mother loved Mexico. 
And so we were on our way uh, to Mexico in our, in our old station wagon. So we would camp for long periods of time. We, we actually drove all the way down to the Yucatan and to mm. Chiapas. Wow. And we loved Mexico very much. And we got to see, uh, I'm a, a part of uh, Mexico. We would camp in Baja. It, it was just incredibly beautiful. Mm. And, and, um, and there was nothing, you know, it was just us tents and uh, the salami we brought along to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then we ate a really wonderful shrimp and things like that that we bought. Uh, from the fishermen. So anyway, um, we we love that. And but what I immediately saw when you would cross the border is the uh, the very different economic situation from mm -hmm. one side to the other. And uh, so by that point, the sort of whirlwind of cultures and languages and inexplicable uh, uh, questions that were lurking all around became sort of my middle name, you know, mm -hmm. I just was trying constantly. And, and I didn't really think that I, um, I came from a, a background, maybe it's the Cartesian French, where children are not really supposed to, um, with, you know, impart their grand opinion. So really, I was sort <laughs> of like, <laughs> everything was questioned. Uh -huh. Um <laughs> Yeah, and that's probably one of the things that made me uh, become a writer. Sure, sure. So, so y your relationship with language seems to be a very interesting one, and specifically about that. Uh, could you elaborate just a moment about your mother? Y you had mentioned in another podcast how she she was a very literate person. She she pursued that quite a bit. Uh, could you share a bit about some of the lessons that you picked up along the way from your mother in terms of in terms of that language and its power, and we can get into opera as well, because I, I believe that was something that she imparted to you as well, that love, but it's specifically about language. So yes, my mother, as you know, was French, but when she got to this country, and I, and I don't think that orig originally, like at the beginning, they planned to stay, mm. but you know, they, unclear, but as she stayed, she became very uh, passionate about being utterly bilingual and when i was a little girl she would say katrine uh, when i make a mistake please correct me so i did and then she got extremely upset so <laughs> i i was like i guess i guess she didn't really want me to correct her <laughs> but she loved uh english and she she was very uh, involved in literature and read widely and and really by the end of her life was uh, somebody that I thought to be one of the most bilingual people. Um, but this is a little bit of a curveball. I was wondering if I could read to you a small poem that I wrote for her. Absolutely. Yeah, it would, that would be a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Because it really will embody everything that you're asking me. So it's called The Clementine. And it, the day before I left California for New York, my mother peeled me a clementine one skillful, never-ending peel, which she formed into a rose on top and presented to me with the words, voila, ma chère, avec mes compliments. She, my quiet, ardent admirer, had learned the skill of orange peeling from my grandfather in Algeria, their native place. 
amidst the clementine groves of Missergine near Oran. His shadow haunted the room when she presented me his orange rose. So the reason I wanted to read that is because, you know, I, I when one talks, and you know this better than anyone, when one talks about writing, it's really not the same thing as what writing in fact is, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, you know, that poem for me embodies so many things that are so uh, emotional and, and many, in many ways tragic, you know, some of the, some of the things that we lose mm -hmm. when we leave our, our homeland and when we become, she thought of herself to be in exile. And when we, when we make choices and, and I think that all of my work which I never knew was really happening as I was going on, is about these choices that people have to make, uh, oftentimes because of war, uh, where, you know, I work with many, many survivors, and, and they didn't know that they were going to have to make the choices that they made. Mm -hmm. And they find themselves in different lands and different cultures. And... Um, and we carry that with us, you know, and there's, and there's nothing we can really do about that. Yeah. And it is such a powerful work that you shared with me and the listener. Thank you so much. But to see if we can converge things a little bit with this social purpose, as well as your, your playwriting, when did you feel like, like this was going to be a path for you moving forward as a playwright, stage storyteller, converging into these, these really important social issues? Yes. So I started as an actress and, and I loved acting. And, and the truth of the matter is I was a bad actress. I, I was just uh, not suited for that. However, I feel that, and I'm sure you can relate as a playwright, that in a way one can't really know what it's like to, to, be, uh, to be a playwright. One does need to know what it's like to be the person that has the words, the responsibility of your words. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did, you know, I yearned to, to be in the theater very, very much. And why that was probably that I had no voice. And I, I you know, you mentioned you do a lot of uh, poetry related uh, things for your podcast. And I started as a poet. That was mm. the absolute first thing I did. But then I must have wanted to to get that wor those words out there in a different way, and so from acting I went into playwriting, and uh, the playwriting you know all we can really do as playwrights is is uh, vo be a voice. And uh, one of the first stories that came to me was I was handed an article about a group of women in. Long Beach, California, who suffered from psychosomatic blindness after what they witnessed during the Khmer Rouge. And I looked at the article in the photograph and I thought to myself, well, how can that be possible? Mm. You know, maybe since my father is a scientist, that was a, a way that I could be like, well, you know, I, I, I'm not a scientist, but like, how could the brain waves be moving and, and the, the eyes not be working? And that just became like, in a way, a lifelong journey, because to understand that mm -hmm. is to understand post-traumatic stress disorder, is to understand uh, 
culture clash and and uh, then U.S. complicity, which mm-hmm. is at the core of what happened with Cambodia. Yeah, and this is something fascinating that I wanted to ask you about because it seems like the idea specifically of what happened in Cambodia initially is almost jettisoned into into storytelling as a way to to share these causes, but you're not coming back to it. So this was something that you had with you early on, but now you're coming back to it and, and kind of seeing it in a new light with uh, with the play. Can you tell me about the first work that you put together and, and how that contrasts with where you are now in, in this new production of, uh, of Where Elephants Weep? Mm. So the first play was Eyes of the Heart, and it was a, a family story about a blind woman who comes to be with her family in Long Beach, California, and is uh, completely uh, a stranger in a strange land, an outsider, a, and uh, in the most quintessential way, and is uh, also trying to get help from a white eye doctor who who is at the uh, completely at the other end of the spectrum, at, which is very similar to me and my own story in terms of trying to understand and then how these these people actually come together and uh in some way uh uh join well she joining the world for for my main character tita is the what happens to her and people always ask uh, at the end of the productions of the play, well, did the women see again? And, and that remains somewhat of a question. And, and in terms of what you're asking, um, I think with Where Elephants Weep, which is the opera, um, the, there are certain questions that will not, be ever answered and that similar questions remain at the end of where elephants weep Mm -hmm. so um yeah yeah Yeah. so specifically about where elephants weep this is a very peculiar project because it is a rock opera in a culture that has suffered a lot that has gone through some horrific events in in recent memory and i'm curious of how this project came together because it it culminated in its initial presentation in 2008. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So I'm curious what the lead up to that premiere was so that we can talk about this revival and, and how you found your way into this collaboration and what that was like. Yes. So in addition to being a playwright, I ha- I am a librettist also, which means I write the words for, for opera. And I had already written an opera called The Floating Box, uh, which was uh, about oral histories that the composer and I had taken. And I was approached for this uh, Where Elephants Weep project by a producer called John Burt and the composer who was the at the forefront of this project, Him Sopi. And, and Him Sopi is a, a Cambodian composer and they had the a loose story and from there we we developed it starting we met i met him in uh, i think 
2001 or something mm-hmm. like that. And so, so it was really, I, I think also it's important to say that opera can take a very long time. Plays take a long time. Operas can take even longer. So, so we had just the very basics of the story of two young Cambodian American men who are survivors of the genocide who decide to go back to their country. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, we decided we were going to loosely base it, very, very loosely base it on Tum Teve, which is uh, a kind of Romeo and Juliet story, very traditional Cambodian story. And we were going to tell that story. And then um, Him Sopi decided that it would be very good to have 27 traditional Cambodian instruments in an orchestra and a Cambodian rock and roll band. And of course, you know that Cambodia before the genocide had a tradition of rock and roll. And, but it's their, it's their own hybrid version. Mm. And that, um, as you may also know, 80 to 90% of the artists died during the Khmer Rouge regime. That's horrific. Yeah. yeah. So, so you have uh, this extraordinary person, Him Sopi, who survives the Khmer Rouge regime. And then in the, so that was 75 to 79. So in the early 80s, his, he does. He manages to get to Moscow, Russia, mm. to get an education in in music, and he gets a PhD in in Moscow, where he his PhD thesis is the traditional instrumentation of Cambodian music. So already, this is a person who had to learn a whole new language, uh, Russian, and then do his PhD. And then he, and then when he came back, he was he was ready to go in terms of writing this score for this opera. Mm-hmm. And so the score involves what I mentioned: the rock and roll band, the traditional instrumentation. We are creating the story together. I am writing the words, and then ultimately, all of that is being scored for the opera. And then. Uh, we decide that we also want it to be in English and in Khmer. Mm-hmm. So that means that everything, if they're, if the performers are singing in Khmer, we have English surtitles. And if they're singing in English, we have Khmer surtitles. So it's completely, and when you see the Broadway on demand capture, you will see all of that, which makes it a, a super uh, embracing multicultural project. That's beautiful because it was, I mean, even 15 years ago uh, when it first came out, I mean, that was a pretty forward thinking sort of uh, sort of way of producing work. So that, I got to applaud you for that. But beginning in the early 2000s, when when this started to become something more than embers, what kind of trepidation did you have going into this? Because I know that you by this point you had a lot of experience working with oral cultures doing research and producing work that was related to a lot of these these social causes but tackling something of this scope was there were there some concerns on your on your end of problems that needed to be solved that that 
sort of kept you up at night more than others? Mm. Well, yes. And I think uh, that the problems that kept uh, me, I had some, and then there was an entire team of people that had problems that kept them up at night, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) So so nobody was getting much sleep. No, (laughs) no. Seven Um, years straight of no sleep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for one, um, you just have to bring up, one just has to bring up the work of, of opera in, because you're going back and forth between words and music. So uh, we threw out a lot of songs. I mean, just the other day, <laughs> uh, Sopi was telling me about um, a song we had called Empty Orchestra, which was actually based on karaoke because karaoke is a big deal in, in <laughs> Cambodia. And so we had this song and he was like, remember Empty Orchestra? I was like, oh my God, I actually <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah. So there's just an endless amount of work you know, because you, you write something and it doesn't fit into the story or it, it just doesn't work or, you know, so mixing and matching and working and, and then list people listening that come in and going, you know, anything from that sounds terrible to uh, <laughs> that's just not going to work for whatever reason or, yeah. So it's just those kinds of things for the librettist are a a big thing because you're constantly trying to redo the story and try to figure out how to make it better and try to make it uh, more uh, dr- dramaturgically uh, successful. Uh, so those are things that would keep me up at night. Um, I did a lot of rhyming, um, so you know I was I was I was very involved in in looking at, at versification and rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the big picture, uh, along the way, we there was simply the thing of how to keep us together. Him, so he lives in Cambodia. Mm. Uh, I'm here. We, I I went there to work on it. He came here. The producer, uh, John Burt, was um, really uh, you have to put someone like that in the category of a saint because <laughs> you know. <laughs> Somebody like that is is just uh, shepherding the project and and constantly being like, oh well, this is going to take a bit longer than we thought, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So the ramp up was that we decided to workshop it in Lowell, Massachusetts, because mm-hmm. that's where one of the largest Cambodian American communities is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. And we did it at Lowell High School. And Lowell High School is a super big high school. And uh, the community, uh, through a a big consortium of people, came together to kind of embrace the workshop of Where Elephants Weep, which was our first opportunity to see it uh, fully sort of on its feet with the orchestra. Mm. And what year was that? that That was, yeah, that was the year right, the 2007. Wow. So, yeah. So basically we did it there. We, we, we saw a lot, you know, it was good, but we saw, and it was very uh, meaningful for the community there. Uh, they came out, I mean, there were like lines around the block and, oh, great. and, and there are a couple of performances, not a lot. And, um, you know, I, I got feedback. I would listen. One man told me, um, that the Buffalo horn, which plays a big part, um, because it's a horn that's used to call elephants uh, in in the forest, 
in Cambodia, he said that also for him, the buffalo horn represents the sound, represents something emotional that allows people, him and others, to cry. Oh, wow. So that, so that was really interesting. And it was, it was really, um, I think, a really great idea to do it there. And then the next year is when we brought it to Cambodia, to Phnom Penh. That's so powerful. And in between that year, were there some things that you might consider dark moments in the production where you said, this isn't really gelling? There are things that we've learned from this workshop that just completely destroyed some notions that you thought were were pretty surefire about the, the logic of the story or the structure of the play. Did you have some of those scenarios where where you, you had to confront something that just clearly wasn't working in up on up to the premiere of the show totally tons we had to go back to the drawing board um the depiction of the monks has always been something and when we do the revival in 2024 we're going to go back yet again and look at that Mm. um so that uh the love story the end of the opera what we decided to do and again we're going to look at the end of the opera again uh so it's it's been a constant um Mm -hmm. reorganization and um refining uh with with the whole team being completely involved i mean this is a huge team so when the show premiered in Cambodia, I'm curious to know what, what the reaction was. And of course, there was some backlash, if you could elaborate a little bit, and then I'll, I'll ask you some more about the, some of the work that is to come. But what was that feeling like being with that audience and, and you know, having the pleasure of, of them seeing that story? Yes. Uh, so we rehearsed in Phnom Penh and it was uh, such an exciting rehearsal process. I mean, I've been in many, many rehearsal processes now, and I would say that this one was uh, uh, so, so special because you had uh, a series of Broadway performers from the United States. You had the top performers from Cambodia, a director uh, from Canada, another director from Cambodia, choreographer from the US, but also choreographers from from Cambodia, dancers, singers, um, uh, a whole design team that was constantly like every minute trying to kind of figure out how to culturally uh, vet every single thing. So for example, if you're offering something in a temple, how is that done? And Yang Sitol, who played our lead, um, is also what's called an acha. And an acha is a civil, a lame person, uh, religious uh, entity who Mm. would, for example, facilitate at a wedding or something like that. So he is a Buddhist and also him. So he is a Buddhist. And so everything was, was shown and reshown and worked on. So it wasn't, you know, it's already hard to, to rehearse a play because as you know, so there was all of that. And, um, we kind of built it from the ground up 
And then, we, and we were all living together during mm. the entire time. And then we uh, brought it from the rehearsal studio into the big space, and then we started building it there. And uh, it, it, the tickets went on sale, and it was sold out immediately. And it was a big, it was a big venue, and we had to add a performance mm. because there was more audience. And then um, the idea was that it would be shown on, on national television. So it was filmed. And, and that is for that reason that we're going to be able to do the Broadway on demand. Because mm. oftentimes you don't get great, at least in the U.S., you don't get great film captures of live work. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we did. And um, it was filmed and, and then also shown on television. And, and so the response was... Um, I mean, I, I want to say this this uh, delicately. I mean, it, the response was was incredible because people hadn't had an opportunity to see something of that kind of uh, magnitude in terms of the combination of so many cultural uh, things. And it was also it's an emotional story. It's a it's a deeply moving story about womanhood, about what it's like to, to give something up and, and the prices you pay. And it's about violence. And, um, and these are stories. I, I mean, yes, it, it, they're, it's Cambodia, but it's also, these are universal stories that frankly, now that we look at 2023 that are mm -hmm. just happening everywhere. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, just such a, a beautiful opportunity that you folks had to bring that sort of joy and experience to people who have gone through a lot. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, because there were, there were some concerns in terms of what needed to change in the script, I guess without giving much away, you know, is there a way to, to mend the reasons for the backlash, the reasons for that, that censorship that took place at the time? Well, uh, so it was, it showed on television and then it, for one performance, it was supposed to have two and then it was banned mm -hmm. uh, by the, by the government. Uh -huh. Um, uh, but I would say that the, the creators, uh, him, Sophie, the composer and, and, and then Yang Sitol, who was, was also, uh, very involved in the production, uh, are Buddhists themselves and completely stood by the 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 work of art mm -hmm. and uh, so I think that and I, I that's why I think it's really important for people to take a look at the at the Broadway on demand um, and see um, I think that what I would like to say is that politics, pol the political canvas of countries is very, can be very idiosyncratic. And that we in the United States have our own political canvas. And we, uh, the U.S., has the tendency uh, for reasons that I really don't understand to go around and tell other people in the world, you know, what they're mm -hmm. supposed to be doing when in fact, you know, we have not joined the ICC ourselves. We're not party to the International Criminal Court. And we 
haven't signed uh, big climate change treaties or, or in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, so people, there are different gradations of what, uh, what political statements mean. And um, I think that we all live within those constructs and we make art. Mm-hmm. We make mm-hmm. our art and, you know, you may have somebody who comes to a play in the United States and gets, there are issues in the U.S. that are hugely volatile mm-hmm. and that would send a certain audience member out of that theater very, very angry. And I've been in theaters in the U.S. where there's been a play where afterwards, literally, it's like lighting a flame <laughs> match. Yeah. People will just start fighting, you know. So that is the nature of art. And that mm-hmm. is the nature of, of what's happening always. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned it. And and thank you for really expanding that thought, because I feel like in this circumstance, it's not to say, oh, how dare they do this to us, you know, uh, you know, censor the truth or anything. But it's almost like you're threading the needle to expand the conversation, to find a way for this message to make its way in, in some form that is palatable to those existing governments, but still open up the discourse in that in that particular place but it seems like you've had plenty of experience looking at certain issues and bringing them to where they don't really feel like they need to be talked about or or maybe that are getting suppressed in some way do you feel like that's been your experience in some of these some of these issues that you've tried to address in previous plays like people just want to sweep things under the rug um i think that kind of the opposite actually oh, okay. that a lot of times when when my plays are done in the U.S., there's a lot of uh, one of the reactions by the audience is things like, oh, we we didn't really understand this topic or, you know, we heard about the Khmer Rouge or we heard about mass incarceration of women in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, in solitary confinement. But, you know, I didn't really quite understand uh, what it meant or you know, so it, it generally has the ability to open up um, a, a dialogue, mm-hmm. I, I would say, or or reconfigure um, uh, thoughts and, and feelings. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you, you feel like that's never been an issue where there has been contentious dialogue you know, from, from any of your work, most of it has been fairly positive then in terms of the, the way that you've set up discussion from the work. Um, that's or I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm asking more in terms of backlash, I, sh- I should say, yeah. you know, whether it's yeah. uh, related to a certain issue or, or if you've experienced something negative like that and what is to be taken from those experiences, if you yeah. have any. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, an example, uh, a couple examples. Uh, my play Lemkin's House, which is about Raphael Lemkin, who invented the word genocide, and, uh, Polish Jewish lawyer. You know, people would say to me, uh, wow, you know, I wasn't planning to come to see this. You know, I had no interest or I had no. And I came and, and I 
it was funny and it, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I'm okay after seeing it, you know? Uh, so I think that's a, that's a hurdle. And, and, and I, and yes, it's, a, a, you're right. I mean, it's not for everyone. My plays do not, I don't have, um, a t I don't tie things up loose, uh, neatly in a bow and, and I've worked with uh, directors who have encouraged me not to do that, and and that might not be for everyone, you mm -hmm. know. So I, I absolutely think. And then also, him so P has told me that when we do the revival, he's like, you know, maybe we need. He has mentioned the word happy ending, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, you may, and I, and I'm like, I'm I'm okay with that if that's what, you know. I'm not I'm not gonna. Like I'm going to do everything I can to be truthful to the characters, uh -huh. but uh, right, you know, I, I I feel like I need, I want to be flexible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple more questions to be mindful of your time, but this has been amazing so far, and I can't thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, I'm curious of your experience as somebody who has been out in the field, in so many words, to gather oral histories to be a part of certain communities and to commune with people uh who who are different than ourselves and there is there is that's i think a, a very difficult task sometimes because you're coming into spaces where where people are being vulnerable and and sharing a lot of of difficult situations and and a lot of stories that are not too uh too uh <laughs> palatable for some people you know, and, and I'm curious how, how you handle that over the years, because you've been doing this for, for most, if not all of your career and what kind of, I'm curious, what kind of self-care or what kind of, how do you, how do you handle the kind of emotional, uh, intake, uh, of the work that you do? Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that. And it is something that I have thought about very, very much recently. And it also, uh, so in kind of in terms of thinking about the sum total um, and also some realizations that came to me, and, and, this, is, and this is how I feel, um, I, I believe that the operating principle for making change and for being a change maker, which is, which is what I hope I can be, is the idea of putting this under the umbrella of human rights. Because I think that I now have the knowledge simply because I've gone into the sort of micro world of, for example, understanding the complex geopolitical situation in Cambodia and US relations. And so in the micro, and then had enough experience to look at the macro, and to know that there are superseding human rights issues such as women's rights, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, that are things that can be addressed without having to get into the minutia of the politics that are beneath it. Mm -hmm. And I can help, I understand that enough to be able to help in the sense that I can identify what what some of these human rights problems are. And, and I think that if 
the world could have the chance to look at these things from that standpoint, we would have uh, hopefully more luck in solving some of solving some of the issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, whereas before. Of course, I would get into the weeds completely. Like mm-hmm. you know, when I listened in the in the nineties to woman after woman at the in the Cambodians women group tell me their story, which will make me just cry to hear that had I gone right, I would have been killed, and I went left. I mean, over and over and over again, and realizing. The, the just the logistics of what it's like to be a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, now I can be. I don't have to necessarily go down the that journey over and over again and listen to, you know, every single uh, story to understand what the the larger mechanisms of the of that is. Mm-hmm. And and I feel extremely hopeful. Because I feel like I've, I know that these people are out there because I've met them, mm-hmm. that there are a huge amount of change makers that are out there mm-hmm. that know the same thing and know it even, you know, know it better and that they, and that we, we can, we can, we can do it, you know, mm-hmm. we can do it. Thank you for sharing that. That's just so moving and incredible because it is vital work and it reminds us that there is a, a world of possibility of change outside of ourselves. And I think for some of us, you know, and, and I think for outsiders in particular, um, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because I'm trying to write about it in some way that isn't formulaic or that isn't too superficial, but it's this idea that folks who, who, have, who have suffered, who have gone through a lot, it's hard for them to exist. It's hard for them to operate in a world that, that sometimes it's, is not designed for them to excel. And for, for us to share our voice and to be open and start thinking of community, I, I think that you've, you've maybe, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how somebody can get out of their heads, get out of their own suffering, to move forward and to take on this kind of action, to answer this call, to be more socially aware to look around and see how their perspective as outsiders can can help in in this discourse because i think a lot of folks just it's difficult to break out and and it seems like you found a way to take the things that that might have hurt somebody else in in that kind of outsider experience and you you're using it for some amazing things you're you're doing a lot well in answer to that i i would start by saying you know I, I, what, what really obsesses me and what I really uh, am focused on is what, when you talk about people that are, feel like outsiders or the the treatment of, of survivors and the treatment of so many people is so poor and so bad and the lack of a uh, let's just look at the Native American genocide and slavery. Mm-hmm. I mean, in so until we can truly acknowledge those two things as a country, we there's uh, for me those are the 
the key points. And Mm -hmm. so what I, what I say is of course, people that have been treated that way historically are, are feeling dispossessed and, and, and they have every right to. And so those are the voices that it, you know, it's not fair to say, we want to hear your voices when you have been absolutely uh, disrespected. Exactly. Yeah. So then what, so that what I want to say to, to people who have the power is please have the responsibility to to listen and acknowledge because as a person who i think my i can say that having heard the voices of people survivors and and can truly say like this there's nothing like what i've heard have the honor these people Mm -hmm. you know yeah um and so i think i think the what i what i hope well so i want to make it clear that that it is it is absolutely inhumane and a human rights violation in itself to disrespect and to erase and to make people invisible that's that's an absolute violation mm-hmm. and then and then to turn around and be like oh well we want to hear your voice there's a bit of disconnect there yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So lastly, I, I want to ask you just two more things. And uh, uh, again, uh, I just want to remind folks that uh, Where Elephants Weep is going to be streaming for free, which is a beautiful opportunity that that I, I guess that's going to be April 14th through the 23rd, um, broadwayondemand.com. Hopefully everyone who's listening will be able to check that out. Uh, but lastly, I, I just want to ask you, what would you say to young creatives and storytellers who are outsiders who are trying to be more socially aware who are trying to find their footing in in this very difficult uh world what does it take to get started uh as a as a socially responsible storyteller who wants to use their art to to bring activism to their community yes uh i would say uh you are the future and and the and by that it, that is just such a such an important, uh, you know, like if I'm on a relay race, I'm handing over the baton to you. Um, it is so vital. And your voice is the beautiful voice. And your voice is the only voice that we need right now. And that also, sometimes in your gut, in your heart, somewhere you do have that, I've had it before, like that thing where you're like, I know this is what I have to do. And if you, you know, and I, I don't say it lightly, if you can follow that, and if you can also find community and find people, and, and it, you're welcome to, you, people can find me on my, on my website, just reach out, you know, if you have an idea or whatever, um, you know, just find those other people, you know, that, that, they always say, like, when you're showing a piece of work, show it to a good friend, you know, somebody who's going to be <laughs> kind. <laughs> and, and then, you know, show it to somebody who you trust who might have, a, you know, a, a point of view that, that is going to help you along. You know, surround yourself with 
with uh, people, a community, and listen. I guess I would also say, I would say listen, but I'd also say, and be listened to. Allow yourself to be listened to. Don't be invisible because there is a bad, that mechanism out there where people, powerful people will do that. <laughs> It's a wonderful note to end on, but Catherine, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. And we're just scratching the surface. I mean, you've, you've led such yeah. a phenomenal life as an artist and you have created such worthwhile work that I just want to thank you for, uh, for reminding us of what is important in terms of what we do as, as creatives, as theater makers, and also for creating work that, that activates our conscience. It's so, it's so hard to do. And sometimes we can be afraid to get there, but the work that you're creating gives me hope that that we can continue to to nourish each other and uh, and to bring more of these stories to light because we need to to help the voiceless as much as possible. So thank you for everything that you do, and this was just an honor. So I'm I'm just so thankful for your time. Thank you so much. Will you take care? And I will be in touch on the internet really really soon. Great. <laughs> All right. Have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.